Okay. Always great to have him on. You know him well. David Birdsell, the fine, fine, of Provost King University. Nice enough to give us a couple of minutes. It's a busy one, ladies and gentlemen. And we say a good morning to you, sir. Hope it's all well. It is very well indeed, Jay. Good morning to you. Oh, but uh, you know what? We've got a plate full here. Mr. Birdsell, so let's uh, let's get into the Santos stuff. You know, I keep hearing Birdsell soundbites all over the place. I like it. Um, you know, it's interesting. I said this morning, you know what, George, if you don't go to the White House, you're done. I mean, can Kevin McCarthy act like a Speaker of the House? He's like the Joe Torrey of this team right now, especially when it comes to a freshman congressman. I mean, here is a chance for this guy to put aside all the stuff. I get it. Okay, you got investigations galore going on, but you got a chance to get in front of the President of the United States. You don't turn that down. For him not to be at the White House today uh, is a sign to me that he should finally step away. I mean, at least 59% of the voters, David, in a Siena poll release saying that, uh, you know what, George, is not happening. You should step away, 59%. But today, as egregious as it comes, if you are not going to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. What do you think? Well, I think it's high time uh, for the congressman to step aside. As you say, he's lost the confidence of his voters. Now, he wouldn't be the first politician to be upside down with his voters even early into a tenure, although this kind of a flip uh, in the short period since the election is unusual. But the reasons are unprecedented. The extent of this man's misrepresentations, many of which he has admitted to, are staggering. And every single day that he stays in the body is an affront not only to the whole of the U.S. Congress, of course, but particularly to the Republican majority, uh, which continues to tolerate in its midst, uh, with the power, by the way, to bring him up in front of the Ethics Committee uh, and send him packing, uh, should they so choose. They choose not to do that. So there will not be, I am quite confident at this stage, because it would have happened if it were ever going to happen, uh, there will not be a remedy until the courts uh, convict this man of some felony fraud, uh, which, by his own representations, he has almost certainly committed. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, listen, I understand McCarthy. You know, you got a slim majority as it is. You know, why, uh, why push it even more so? Let the courts and these investigations kind of run itself out. But I tell you, he's not making himself look well. Speaker McCarthy, and as, at this point, you know, I mean, what what else are we going to hear from Santos? You know, what what other nonsense are we going to hear from him? I mean, it's a complete joke. How this man, and listen, I was the one who actually gave him a little bit of a pass, knowing he was coming on the program, which he never did, but I gave him a little bit of a pass, a little embellishment, I get it, but you know what? The campaign stuff, the, the dollars and everything else, that's a whole other thing. Uh, if it is found to, you know, be in a situation uh, where it puts uh, a negative light on everything. So, in essence, you know, Santos uh, in some trouble here. He's not doing himself any favors by not showing up. So, uh, we shall see there. Let's move on to these documents. Uh, you know, they're all over the place. Wilmington, Rehoboth Beach, uh, God knows where, where, wherever else. Uh, Hunter Biden living in a residence with that Corvette, the garage. The whole thing, secret classified. He gets in California last week in front of the cameras addressing it for the first time. Cooperation and everything else. Council, even the whole council thing is a joke to begin with, with Garland and uh, the president's lawyer. But uh, I tell you, uh, how serious of nature is this to his 2024 uh, run for possible re-election? 
Well, potentially very serious. This is clearly a massive series of oversights over a period, not just of uh, the transition out of the vice presidency, but uh, some of these documents evidently date back to his period in the Senate. Uh, so we're going all the way back to the uh, early years, the first decade of this century, and I believe uh, for one set of documents, the end of the 20th century. Um, the questions are how they got there and what they are. Uh, the, the legal risk is mitigated to a certain extent by the cooperation on the part of the Biden team uh, and his attorneys. Remember, this started, and this is in sharp contrast to the case with former President Trump, uh, when his attorney stepped forward and said, hey, <laughs> we've got these things, and immediately returned them to the National Archives. But if there are serious uh, secrets that pose a risk to national security, uh, we don't know the level of classification of all the documents that have come out at this stage. Uh, we do know in the case of the Mar-a-Lago documents that they go right through top secret and into special compartmentalized intelligence, uh, which is the most uh, secret classification of documents that we have in the country uh, and that should never be out of a secure facility for any reason at any time in anyone's hands including the president uh, so those questions loom uh, either way what we clearly have in this case is a serious political problem that very badly muddies his message of a clear uh, together administration that follows the rules in all cases because demonstrably in several going back perhaps two decades and more, uh, he doesn't always. All righty. Uh, does this exonerate Donald Trump as far as the raid Mar-a-Lago last August? No, not, uh, not by any stretch. Uh, and the biggest differences there are some that I just alluded to. Not only no cooperation, but stonewalling, uh, serial misrepresentations on the part of the candidate through, or pardon me, the uh, former president through his attorneys, uh, that everything has been yielded back to the federal government, uh, to the National Archives, when that is demonstrably not the case. Uh, there are at least uh, two of his attorneys who face serious felony charges as a result uh, in prospect uh, because they seem to have misrepresented what they claim to be a legal fact. Um, and then the continuing assertion that he owned these documents, which very clearly he does not. And I, I want everybody listening to understand there, there is no gray area in this regard. The National Records Act made very clear that the president does not own what the president touches while in office. Uh, those materials must be returned to the government, almost all of them to the National Archives. Uh, and then the archives decides what can be disposed of. And if you think that there's something that's genuinely personal, your letters to your, uh, you know, your thank you notes to your aunt for Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it might be, uh, you can say to the people collecting it on behalf of the archives, that's my stuff, and you agree, and they'll agree and they'll give it to you. But it is not presumptively yours ever, period, full stop, and that has been the unaccepted case all the way since 1976. Interesting. David Birdsell with us. I went, told you about the poll with Santos and the Siena. 59% of the voters uh, want him out. Uh, I was a little surprised. Oh, am I surprised? I'm not really surprised, but I can't figure out the number as far as the poll also finding. Kathy Hochul had a 56 job approval rating. 36% of the voters disapproved of the job she's been doing since she took the reins. From Andrew Cuomo back in August 2021, and I'm trying to decipher, well, wait a minute. What's warranted regarding 56% as far as an approval rating on a positive side? I can't figure that out. Maybe I'm wrong. 
Well, I think there are a couple of things happening right now. One is that she's really in her first honeymoon period. Uh, you know, if you think about the way that she came into office, she's following a disgraced governor who leaves with sexual harassment charges hanging over him uh, and serious questions about his management style. There isn't really, in those circumstances, a celebration uh, for a newly elected official. So this is her first uh, electoral victory as governor, and there is that glow that lasts for a bit. Number two, you have rising poll numbers for the president and for the Democratic Party overall. And when that's true, that rising tide tends to lift all boats, all blue boats anyway, uh, and that certainly appends to the governor. Uh, and finally, number three, you have an easing of economic conditions and improving optimism among people about their own economic prospects. Uh, and those things, even though, let's face it, governors have almost nothing to do with that, uh, that nonetheless is also a halo effect that affects uh, senior elected officials of the party that's on the rise in those cases. So all those things help Kathy Hochul right now. You know something, when you peel the onion back, you know, even giving a state legislature the raise that she did without and even an, an, an iota of negotiation uh, is is quite perplexing to me. And especially if you are not going to tackle what needs to be tackled. And I say that regarding, you know, the crime stuff, bail reform and discovery and everything else. I mean, if you're not going to have a conversation, well, you know what? You're not getting a raise. I mean, that's really, you know, that's it in a nutshell. And I think a lot of people were somewhat wondering, well, why not? What about that uh, situation in itself? Well, certainly pay raises and work conditions, the, uh, the calendar of the body, these are things that can be negotiated uh, with the governor. That, and any governor can use that as a club to uh, enjoin at least the conversation, as you say, uh, with members of the legislature. Uh, this will clearly be something that comes up uh, in the next election campaign. Uh, it is because she hasn't served long enough to be denied a, a second run at the office. Uh, if she'd taken over earlier in Andrew Cuomo's term, that might have been a different story. Uh, so that will come up again. Um, and and all, legislative raises always do. Uh, the thing that I would have liked to have seen in return for any uh, pay increase uh, is a sharp limitation on outside income. And that really is is the best justification, in my view, uh, for thinking about legislative raises. I mean, it's one thing when we had a part-time legislature, uh, they're still only in session for some portion of the year, but, uh, you know, they, they were not paid enough money uh, to be able to make ends meet on their legislative salaries alone. And that encourages people to get other jobs, and that's what gets you the Shelley Silver situations of this world uh, when you're passing legislation uh, to help clients in your day job uh, that is not the job that you have when you're up the Hudson in Albany. And so uh, that's what I would have liked to have seen, and that's consistent with the kind of pay personal comportment standard. Uh, but there's no question that crime remains a salient issue in the public imagination. Uh, it remains a problem in terms of rising rates in some areas, although we're seeing some declines in some of the most concerning areas of crime. But a lot of the highly visible problems, uh, like people who are assaulting uh, riders on subways, like people who are uh, menacing passers-by on the street, 
uh, even while they don't necessarily feed uh, crime statistics in certain categories, if there aren't uh, active crimes committed, it lends to a sense of vulnerability. And that's going to be a serious, serious problem for anybody who runs for office from the council elections coming up this year uh, all the way through the next round of legislative and uh, statewide elections uh, four years from now. Getting those people out of the streets. You know, the mayor, Mayor Adams, is is crying out for help. You know, he needs help here. He knows the deal. Uh, and especially if you look at California right now. I mean, they're reeling. You know, you've had three attacks in three days as far as shootings. You know, Half Moon Bay last night in which uh, uh, seven people were killed, uh, David. Uh, 11, uh, 11 people were killed in the mass shooting of Dan Studer in Monterey Park. We reported this morning right before it came on the air in Oakland at a gas station. One killed, seven injured. They've got tough laws out there. What's going to rise as far as everything? It's very, very difficult to uh, protect against these uh, lone shooter incidents. And I think anybody in law enforcement would uh, uh, would reinforce that message. Uh, what you can do is try to uh, clamp down on the availability of uh, military-style weaponry, make it less likely that there will be multiple deaths at any one place. Uh, what we have seen, and I, I praise the heroes who have stepped forward and assaulted uh, shooters in the act, and that happened uh, in the Monterey Bay case. It happened, of course, uh, in the Colorado Club just a couple of months ago. Um, but we shouldn't be relying on unarmed citizens to try to disarm people with military weapons in crowded public venues who are bent on mayhem. Um, and that is indeed where we are in these cases. I'd look more to more mundane crimes as a sign of what law enforcement is able to accomplish on a routine basis uh, and how police strategies uh, of all sorts uh, can create a better environment. And we have to remember, police strategies don't exist in isolation. Uh, there are social policy concerns that go along with that. If we're thinking about New York City right now, uh, the tens of thousands of migrants who have been shipped by border state governors uh, into the city, which creates a vulnerable and a volatile situation, not because they're more likely to commit crimes necessarily, but because you take all the social network, you strain it to the breaking point, and the people who might have been uh, eyes on for folks who might be likely to get into trouble are now having to deal with an entirely new population. And that balloon just sort of bursts through the fingers at those points, and that makes the job harder for the police. So we really have to look at all of this holistically. Well, uh, David Burzel with us. A couple more minutes. Uh, the fine, fine pros, Kane University. I want to get back to the uh, missing documents for a second, David. You know, it's interesting. You're getting the chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, out the door. Uh, timing's a little curious, no? With the investigation and everything else, as far as the president's handling of these docs and the departure of Ron Klain, one is, is, is maybe to ponder something here, no? Well, perhaps, although there's really never a good time for a chief of staff to leave. Uh, the chief of staff uh, has his hands in absolutely everything that the president does. And in the case of somebody who's been associated with President Biden as long as Ron Klain has, uh, there, there, there's a much, much uh, deeper history between those two men. Uh, but I, chief of staff is a tough job. There aren't too many people who stick it out for multiple years at a time. Um, I, uh, 
I, I wouldn't infer that there is any difficulty that he thinks would go away from stepping down from his government job. Uh, and in fact, if he were worried about it, he'd probably want to keep that job uh, in order to uh, see if he can marshal the forces from his side of, uh, of investigations. But clearly, he's not taking that approach. Uh, and and that, that does not concern me. In fact, it uh, gives me a little bit of confidence that the investigation will proceed um, unimpeded. Um. You know, Florida rejecting the College Board's uh, Pilot Advanced Placement African American Studies course and uh, the decision of the governor, Ron DeSantis, who's, you know, he's got a list as far as what people accuse him of, but uh, now allegedly opposing the teaching of African American history without even trying to decipher exactly what the governor was talking about in that particular situation, do you think it's warranted as far as the vitriol coming his way? Uh, I have to to think it is, and it comes down to a couple of things here. First of all, as you said, this really looks right now like uh, opposition to teaching the history of uh, the African diaspora in the United States, Uh, and that's a remarkable position uh, for a governor to take about the history of 14% of the people living in this country today. Uh, the fact that he is unable to put his finger, unable or unwilling to put his finger on anything that he objects to, arguing speciously that whatever this curriculum is, is contrary to Florida law, is remarkable. And I think this was a very serious political mistake on Governor DeSantis's part. He's been really clever thus far in being able to uh, poke the left uh, to attack, in his own language, uh, woke America, uh, billing Florida as the place where woke goes to die. Uh, and while lots of people, myself included, object to some of the things that he's pushed forward, they're sufficiently well targeted that most of them can withstand uh, court scrutiny um, and don't appear on their face to be broadly discriminatory or to deny something as basic as the history of a major population in the United States. None of those aspects of cleverness apply to this move, and I think this is going to come back to haunt him in the presidential race that he will surely enter within the next two to three months. You know, you could kind of make the case, you know, hey, are we talking about Frederick Douglass here? Are we talking about, uh, the, you know, the, the Till family? Are we talking about the 13th Amendment, or are we talking about, uh, you know, CRT, the queer theory and everything else? I mean, to, to impose something of that nature on kids you know we're talking third fourth fifth graders i mean what what, what are we talking about here you know i'm I'm, and really trying to make DeSantis, you know out to be this uh this this person who a does not want anybody to learn about african-american history is completely wrong that's not what he's talking about here that's why i think it's unwarranted as far as some of the criticism well, it's, it's not clear that that isn't what he's talking about. Uh, first of all, this is not about fourth, fifth, sixth graders. This is an AP class offered to high school seniors. Uh, so that would be the exclusive population. Number two, one thing that we do know is that there's nothing about critical race theory in this curriculum. Uh, so that, and, and by the way, there is no critical race theory in any secondary or elementary curriculum in the United States. Uh, that is, uh, is something that was originated in law schools and uh, taught to graduate students and now is often taught to 
undergraduates, but has never been taught uh, in a high school, at least in any approved curriculum in any jurisdiction in the country. Uh, so this course uh, was designed by the College Board. Uh, there is no more staid, <laughs> conservative, and I'm not talking about politically, I'm talking about culturally, uh, conservative organization in the country than the College Board uh, setting up the criteria for AP courses. And again, without specifying what he objects to in this curriculum, knowing out of the gate, and I have not reviewed the curriculum myself, full disclosure, but uh, knowing, uh, based on the representations by the College Board, that there is no no critical race theory or any of that uh, uh, sort of uh, thinking in this curriculum, uh, it, the burden is on the governor to say why this is illegitimate, while every other course from the College Board is legitimate, um, including all of the historical and sociological classes. I think he has stated that, though, in this particular case. You know, the problem is when you have a curriculum curriculum to be used regarding ideas, opinions, even that of uh, an ideological type of situation, uh, in order to kind of distort points of view, I think that's when the line is crossed. I think that's what DeSantis was pretty much, uh, you know, kind of invoking on. I, that's That's what I got out of it. You know, and especially when it comes to kind of peeling it back somewhat, especially in this case where queer theory and everything else is being imposed on students, I think that's a line that's crossed. That's just my opinion. But in essence, uh, you know, listen, either way, it's up for debate, I, I would I would imagine. So, uh, and DeSantis has got his fair share. We know that. But, oh, yeah. since, go ahead. Final thoughts, sir. No, finally, I, I just uh, on, on this point, and I would be happy uh, before uh, we talk again. I'll, I'll take a look at that curriculum if it's publicly available, uh, and and share some thoughts on what it is. But in the meantime, what I hope the governor will do, if there are substantive uh, arguments about this curriculum, because again, he hasn't specified any. Um, uh, if there are substantive problems with this curriculum, tell us what they are so that we can know what concerns the governor and what he believes to be contrary to the laws of the state of Florida. ...is that black history is the history as far as this country, and it should be taught. It should be comprehended. Uh, you know, it's a part of the story of this country. I, I, I think that's what Absolutely. it's all about. It's not about blocking the, uh, the history or even kind of eradicating what... African Americans went through way back. I think you know that's that has to be in play. So I think you know we're in somewhat agreement there. I just sometimes thinks think things are singled out in a way uh, where it kind of really distorts an entire point of view here, and that of being Ron DeSantis. But he has plenty of it coming his way in, over the uh, over the years. And you know, listen, it is what it is. But yeah, we'll we'll talk about that next time, sir. Uh, always a pleasure to have you, and you stay well. We'll talk again. 